Well, good morning, Four Corners. I trust and hope that you are excited about being here this morning to worship our King, to serve Him through singing and and listening to preaching and praying and just participating in the worship of the people of God directed to Him. And as I've said many times, you know, oftentimes our worship uh, can be understood as, as only vertical, and it is primarily vertical. We are worshiping the Lord. We're not entertaining each other. However, we recognize that when we sing, we are edifying each other in that we are really professing our faith from the heart as we sing these words And we're edifying our brothers and sisters around us who might not have the strength to sing. They might not have the strength to reach up and take hold of the Lord because of the trials of life. And they see us praising him and they are encouraged to take hold of him as their rock and their fortress. So we edify each other as we come here this morning to worship together. Let me get you to go ahead and go go to in your Bibles to Genesis 18. That's where we find ourselves now. We are in a series on Genesis. We have been for some time, and we are steadily making our way through, and now we find ourselves in Genesis 18. And today we are going to cover the second half of this chapter. Verses 16 to 33 will be our focus today. Today is part two of a sermon entitled, Abraham's Three Visitors. That's what we began to look at last week as we covered verses 1 to 15, and we have in this chapter three visitors who come to Abraham's tent. Uh, A very strange passage in some ways. For those of us who have been reading through Genesis up to this point, those of us who've kind of followed uh, uh, these sermons, and as we've gone through, you've seen the Lord appear to his people, uh, but not quite in this way. We see the Lord coming and appearing in the form of a man. To Abraham at his tent. And this may be a passage you've read before and it's just kind of struck you as a little bit strange. And uh, it, it is kind of different for us to read this at this point in the Old Testament. I talked about last week how this appearance of the Lord in the form of a man really prepares God's people as other appearances of the Lord in this way, prepares God's people for the incarnation of the Son of God. That in the first century, God would become man. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Not just appearing in the form of a man, but would become man and would be man forever thereafter. That, and that's something to consider, is that the word, the second person of the Trinity, will always be both God and man. He didn't come and be a man for a while and then go back to heaven and now he is God only, but he is now both God and man forever in the person of Jesus Christ, raising our nature up to the heights of heaven. And so we got here, we've got here in Genesis a preparation for the culmination of all of redemptive history in the coming of Christ. One of these three visitors is the Lord himself, and two of them are angels. And as we began to look at this encounter last week, there were two things I wanted you to notice. So last week we started chapter 18, first half, and there are two things in those 15 verses that I wanted you to see. One, the meal, and then second, the message. The meal and the message. Shortly after confirming and sealing the covenant, the Lord comes to dine 
with Abraham. This beautiful image of, of the Lord sitting there eating food prepared by Abraham. We see Abraham's hospitality there, and, and, and that's important. We understand that hospitality is a mark of the people of God, but that's not what that passage is about. Is oh, look how great of a host Abraham is. It is rather about the Lord engaging in this covenantal meal with his servant Abraham. This is a covenantal meal, a demonstration of peace and communion between those in covenant with one another. God and Abraham, to whom God made his covenant. So that was the meal. And then we saw the message. God had already told Abraham that in one year, he would have a son through Sarah. But this message had only come to Abraham. Only Abraham had heard these words. And undoubtedly, Abraham would have gone back and told Sarah, right? I mean, you imagine that. Some would say, well, maybe, maybe he didn't, but I, that'd be hard to believe, is that he just kept all of this to himself, especially after the Hagar incident. You would think that Abraham would have rushed home to Sarah and said, Sarah, listen, this is what God is going to do. And in fact, he would not have called her Sarai. The next time he saw her, he would have called her Sarah because she was to be a princess. She was to father, or to, she was to mother. She was to mother future kings, even as the Lord had told Abraham, kings will come from her. So God had already told Abraham about this. Now, in chapter 18, the Lord wants to bring this message to Sarah's ears. Sarah's in the tent. She's prepared this food for the Lord and these two angels. She's in the tent listening. The Lord knows that she's listening. And the Lord makes clear to her that she will mother a child in about a year. And when she hears it, what does she do? She laughs, but she doesn't laugh out loud. She laughs to herself. And the Lord knows that she has laughed. This laughter of Sarah to herself opens the door for the Lord to extend his message. His message is for Sarah that she's going to have a son in about a year and then the Lord opens up from this to extend his message to show, one, that he is omniscient, and two, that he is omnipotent. And so we saw last week that in verse 13, it says, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? In other words, Sarah, to herself laughing, is heard by the Lord. Her heart is heard by the Lord and she hears this and recognizes that this is indeed the Lord. And then we get the big idea of this section in verse 14. Is anything too hard or too marvelous for the Lord? Sarah and Abraham up to this point had thought in various ways in their feebleness of faith. They had thought that maybe this is too hard for the Lord. Maybe this is going to happen a more natural way. Maybe all of this is going to happen in a way that is a little more predictable, a little more quote unquote possible. But the Lord all along wanted Abraham and Sarah to know that nothing is impossible for the Lord. 
So this past week, if you were in Gospel Community Group, and I just want to encourage all of you, if, even if you've just started visiting with us, jump into a Gospel Community Group, because this is an opportunity for you to really, two things, one, to take what is preached on Sunday morning and to massage that into the nooks and crannies of your heart and your life. That's the intention of having a sheet of questions based on the sermon, is so that it's not just you come and you listen to something, you move on, but that all week... The words of God that we have in the passage covered in the sermon are massaged into your life and that it becomes a part of your life. And the second reason is that we are in community with one another. We're there together with each other and we're dying to self as we serve each other and bear each other's burdens. But this past week, you will have noticed on the deep sheet this question. In what ways have you been tempted to doubt that nothing is too hard for the Lord. And I think if we're all honest, we would say that even though we know deep down inside, we talked about this in our group this week, even though we know deep down inside that nothing is too hard for the Lord, right? It's intrinsic to Godhood to be able to do everything, anything that you want. But we struggle sometimes to really believe that God can do it. And we talked about how sometimes it's, it's really in our minds, it's, it's the belief that God won't do something. Is this his will? Is this really his will? But then if we're not careful, that quickly bleeds over into a thought, a way of life that says, but can God really do that? Or is that beyond him? And I think the moments where we're most tempted to think that things are too hard for the Lord are moments of waiting. Maybe there's something you've been praying for for a long time and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting 20-some years in the case of Abraham, Sarah. Waiting and waiting and waiting and God's just not responding in the way you want him to respond. Or maybe you just feel like he's not responding at all. And so you're just waiting around all the while that thought that this is too hard for the Lord beginning to take root and grow and grow and grow. Or maybe there is just overt human weakness. You see your own weakness and you see it as insurmountable. How can this be, uh, how can this be overcome? Or someone else's weakness, maybe a spouse. <laughs> we notice our spouse's weaknesses quickly and we tend to dwell on those. And so maybe it's your spouse's weakness. And you just think, that will never change. This person I'm living with, this person I'm married to, is always going to do this. It's always going to be this way. It's insurmountable. Or maybe it's just overall hopelessness about life. I would not presume to think this morning that there is not among us a person who really has reached hopelessness. Maybe Even you're a believer, but in your heart and in your mind, you've just come to that empty place. You've come to that place where you just don't see any way out. And it's in moments like that, that we need to hear the words of Genesis 18, is anything too marvelous for the Lord? No, nothing is too hard for our 
God. So keep waiting, keep praying, be diligent in prayer. Trust God. He hears every moan of your heart, every word that you vocalize or keep to yourself, every laugh within. He hears it and he cares so deeply about all of it. He does listen, but he governs our lives with his wisdom and we must entrust ourselves to that. So that was last week. The meal and the message. And this week, as we come to verses 16 to 33, there are two things I want you to notice. First, the intimacy. And second, the intercession. So that's what we're going to look at today, verses 16 to 33. Part two, Abraham's three visitors. We're going to look at, number one, the intimacy. And number two, the intercession. And you'll see these on your bulletin. Just if you want to... Kind of have that there for you if you'd like to write notes off to the side. It's there in the bulletin. So let me get you to stand, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. So we'll pick up in verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you. To do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not destroy it. I will not do it. Verse 30. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. 
He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. You can go ahead and be seated. Incredible passage. As all of Scripture is, but this in particular really is intriguing. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his blessing and pray that he would Use his word this morning in our hearts. You know, we, we're tempted just to sit here this morning and daydream, not pay attention, uh, let our minds drift. Let's ask the Lord that he would help us not do that so that he can speak into our ears and into our hearts and change us. Let's pray. Father, we bow before your throne this morning. You are the eternal God of justice and mercy. You are the king of all the earth. You are the judge of all the earth, and hallowed be your name. You are the holy God who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God. Lord, we bow before you humbly as those who come boldly into your presence, those who can approach you, those who can speak with you face to face. God, one day we will walk with you face to face in the new heaven and the new earth. Father, we look forward to that day. But until that time, we know that we are in a state of warfare. God, let us not grow casual in our fight against sin. Let us not grow weak and distracted in striving against wickedness and striving after the prize that Paul said he strove for. He moved diligently through his life for that he would that he would obtain by your grace that crown of glory, that imperishable inheritance given to us, not by our works, but by grace through faith. Father, we thank you for this salvation that has come to us through Jesus Christ, your Son. And we praise him this morning as we gather as a church. We praise him as our, our head, the head of this church, the head of all churches, the head of the church universal across space and time. We praise you that he is the head and that he is our king, our master, our Lord, that he is also our friend. We thank you for him. Jesus, our Lord, we ask this morning that you would move about by your spirit here, that you would draw us towards a clearer vision of your glory, that you would draw us towards walking with you and following after you trusting you, your finished work for the forgiveness of our sins and living unto you in all of life. Lord, thank you that you've called us here to this place for this time. We just pause and consider the amazing grace that has brought us to this hour. That even for those here who do not know you, they are here and they are hearing your truth. 
God, we pray that you would use that in their hearts this morning to draw people to yourself, to convert them, to bring their heart from death to life, from darkness to light, from fruitlessness and futility to fruitfulness a hundredfold. God, we pray that you would do these things among us. In Christ's name, amen. So two things to consider this morning, the intimacy and the intercession. So let's go first to the intimacy. Look first at verse 16 with me, if you will. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. So now we see that the scene transitions from Abraham's tent. That's where we were before. Remember, the three men appear. Abraham runs out. 100-year-old Abraham runs out to meet them, bows himself to the ground. Probably took a little bit of time to get back up. He, he brings them to his tent. They, he, he shows them hospitality. And there they are. But the scene now shifts. The scene now shifts to a place overlooking the city of Sodom. Much more somber mood now comes over everything. Now, if you remember, we have already been introduced to Sodom in chapter 13, where Abraham and Lot separate from one another. So remember in chapter 13, you've got Abraham. He has all these possessions. He's got all these herds and herdsmen. And you've got Lot. He's in the same boat. Why? Because he's with Abraham. God's blessed Abraham and therefore blessed Lot. And so Lot has all of these possessions, all of these herds, all of these herdsmen, and the herdsmen start fighting, not getting along with each other over various things, over the the land, uh, where the herds are grazing. And so Abraham, in his peacemaking wisdom, says, look, Lot, let's separate. And in his graciousness and trust in the Lord, he says, you pick. Wherever you want to go, I'll go the other way. That's what Abraham says to Lot. And there in verse 13, we read, Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And then we get this little note there in chapter 13, which uh, it doesn't become important really for us uh, on, the, on the front burner until now. And it says this, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So what is, where is Lot? Lot is kind of right up against Sodom. He's not quite in Sodom really at this point. You don't get the impression he's right up in the middle of all that wickedness, but he's kind of right there on the boundary as far as Sodom. There's where he's grazing. His herds are out there grazing. And then we read in chapter 14, doesn't take long, verse 12, we read that Lot was dwelling in Sodom. It's incredible. I mean, Lot would have immediately, he's a righteous man. Now, we see some, some foolishness for sure in a lot of Lot's decisions, but the New Testament affirms Lot is a righteous man. And even what happens to him afterwards, which we'll get into later with his two daughters, is really the culpability lies with his two daughters, not with him. He doesn't know that it happens. So Lot is considered a righteous man. But we see here that this righteous man has, has foolishly immersed himself in a sea of godlessness. He has found his dwelling somehow, some way, right in the middle 
of this city that is described as wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And Sodom is conquered by an alliance of foreign kings, and Lot is taken captive, and so Abraham goes out to rescue Lot. And during that time, Abraham probably would have gotten to know some of the people of Sodom, because what does he do? He goes and he brings back Lot and all the other people who were taken from Sodom and all the possessions, and he brings them back. And then remember, the king of Sodom comes out in his boldness and his arrogance and starts to negotiate with Abraham rather than falling on his face saying, thank you so much, Abraham. So we get a sense there for his wickedness. But we see that Abraham would have had some interaction with the people of Sodom. He did with the king of Sodom. And of course, Lot is living in Sodom. So on the one hand, yes, Sodom is a very wicked city. But on the other hand, this is where Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his family live. And Abraham knows as he walks out over Sodom and looks down upon it with the Lord and these two angels in that very somber state that Lot is right there in the middle of that city. And it is in this scene overlooking Sodom that we see the intimacy that exists between Abraham and God. And this is really what I want you to focus on at this point is the intimacy. And by intimacy, a word that is used in various ways, what I mean to impart is friendship, familiarity, closeness. We see this intimacy between Abraham and God. Now, last week, I cited a passage from the New Testament, James chapter 2, verse 23, where Abraham is called a friend of God, that language of friendship. He's called a friend of God. And you might think, well, okay, that's a reflection uh, on the New Testament author, James. It's a reflection on stories in the Old Testament. But actually, that's just a reiteration of something that's already been said about Abraham in the Old Testament. So, for example, hundreds of years before, we read in Isaiah, Isaiah 41.8, the Lord addresses through the prophet, he addresses his people, and this is how the Lord refers to them. Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. So in Isaiah, we see there the Lord referring to Abraham as his friend. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7, King Jehoshaphat prays in the midst of the gathered people. And this is what he says. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? So throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, throughout even into the New Testament, it was recognized that Abraham should be referred to as a friend of God. And we see this friendship, this intimacy so clearly in these verses. And I think we see it in two ways. So you can write these down if you would like. We see the, the intimacy between God and Abraham here in two ways. First, in what God does. And secondly, in why he does it. In what he does and in why he does it. So first, in what he does. What does God do here? This interaction between Abraham and God begins with God's deliberation. In verse 17. We've seen this before. Let us make man 
in our own image. We've seen this kind of divine, the divine mind, the deliberation of the divine mind. And here we have it again. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do. That kicks off this section in verse 17. That's the question. And as we read on, we see that God's answer to that question is an emphatic no. No, I shall not hide from Abraham what I am about to do. He will disclose it. He will be entirely transparent with him. He will reveal to Abraham his intentions. And those are given in verses 20 to 21. Look there, if you will. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And this transparency... This disclosure of the divine mind to Abraham, this disclosure of God's purposes and intentions, what he is doing and what he is going to do is precisely, you have to see this, this is precisely how Jesus defines friendship in John 15, 15. You remember these words probably. This is what Jesus, by the way, at a time of covenantal meal, it's amazing when you look at the parallels between this passage with Abraham and the Last Supper with Jesus and his disciples. Same kind of circumstance, same situation. But Jesus says to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant, listen, does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. What does that mean? For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So what is it that constitutes friendship in the mind of Jesus? It means that there is a transparency between God and that person. It means that there is a disclosure of his purposes and what he's going to do. This is how Jesus understands friendship. And Jesus, in this covenantal meal, in this passage where he announces the new covenant in his blood, this is where Jesus grabs hold of his disciples, much like we have here with Abraham, and he says to them, you are my friends. And in these actions of revealing to Abraham what he's going to do, God is saying the same thing to him. So we see this intimacy in what God does. That's the first thing we need to see. The second is we see this intimacy in why God does it. In verses 18 to 19, we get God's rationale for revealing his plans to Abraham. It is amazing when you read the scriptures how you get the heart and mind of God so clearly revealed. God here not only raises the question, am I going to hide this, what I'm about to do from Abraham? He says no to that, but then he also says, this is why I'm not going to do that. He's telling us, he's telling the reader, why is it that God is not going to hide this from Abraham? Verses 18 to 19, look there, you'll see his rationale. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. 
So what is the Lord's rationale? What do we make of this? Why does he reveal this to Abraham? Well, blessing and cursing for the nations will ultimately be determined by relationship to Abraham. And in an ultimate sense, that is true, right? Every person in the world will ultimately, their their destiny, their eternal destination will ultimately be determined by their relationship to Abraham's offspring, Christ. One will either be cursed in rejection of God's Christ or blessed in acceptance of God's Christ. So blessing and cursing will ultimately be determined by relationship to him. Through him, through Abraham, through his descendant, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. So certainly, God will reveal his intentions regarding this particular city, this particular people. If blessing and cursing have to do for the whole world with him, then certainly he'll reveal this cursing of this particular people, this particular city. I think that's one aspect of the rationale. But even more, Abraham is chosen by God. We have that here. You know, God's sovereign choice of his people goes all the way back to the beginning. It's not as though uh, this, this idea was invented by someone like John Calvin. For those who maybe would, would associate such an idea with Calvinism, this is, this is a, an idea that really has just come recently. This goes all the way back, not just to, to even Augustine or to the Apostle Paul. This goes all the way back to Abraham. God chose him from an unbelieving family, from a family of pagan idol worshipers, and made him his own, laid claim on his life, just as Jesus, as we read earlier, chose his disciples. The Lord is sovereign in his choice of some to partake of his grace. And here, Abraham is said to be chosen by God. Literally, the Lord knows him. The Hebrew verb is to know. Understood here as chosen. In this context, the Lord knows him. Of all the people in the world... This man and his offspring are in special relationship to God. Of all the people breathing at that time, this man is in special relationship to the Lord. And even more, this choosing involves Abraham knowing God. This is important to the rationale, knowing his character, knowing the way of the Lord. Part of what it means to know God is to know his way. To know who he is, his attributes, his characteristics. Knowing the way of the Lord. Knowing God's righteousness and justice. So that he can teach it to his children and all future generations. And so the situation in Sodom with this wickedness, this great sin. Is an opportunity for the Lord to further educate Abraham on his righteousness. Do you see that? So here in this moment. God is communicating something about himself in his assessment of Sodom. Sin will not be overlooked. Human wickedness will be punished. And God is educating Abraham on this aspect of his character, that he is righteous, that he hates sin, and that he is just, that he judges sinners for their sin. And it is important. If Abraham is to go on and teach his descendants about the Lord and to do the works of the Lord, it is important that Abraham see the Lord's character in action. And God's relation to Sodom is God's character in action. 
His justice, His judgment being poured out on the wickedness of that city. Before we move on to the next section, which is closely tied to this one, I want to just take a minute and draw out a couple of, or several implications of what we've just looked at. What do do we do with what we've just looked at? What do we do with this intimacy between the Lord and Abraham? How does that relate to us? We've already mentioned some things, but here I want to give you three ways, three specific implications for us. First, as God's chosen ones, as the offspring of Abraham by faith, God does not leave us in the dark about his character and his purposes. God reveals to us through a spirit-guided reading of the word. Now, this is the reason an unbeliever can read God's word and it, and it do nothing. They, they really see nothing. That's not to say that the word is not clear. That's not to say that anyone... I heard one of the best descriptions of Paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone by an unbelieving agnostic professor. One of the best descriptions from an analytical point of view, right? He's just reading the text and he's describing Paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone. And he did a marvelous job describing what Paul was saying. The arguments, the logic of it all, marvelous. One of the best I've ever heard. Did not believe it at all. So yes, we can read the word and understand it, but it is a spirit-guided reading of the word that allows us to pull back the veil and see the glory of God in Scripture. And it is through that that all of God's character and purposes are put on display for the believer. That's who we are. That's where we sit in relation to God, that he's disclosed all of this to us. But there's a reason he's done that. Not just for us to marvel. Not just for us to say, wow, God's glory. He's amazing. It's not just that. It is also that we imitate. We intake and we imitate. We don't just intake. Intake by itself is fruitless. We intake that glory. We intake that awe. We intake that marvel. And then that begins to reshape our lives. We imitate it. And that's exactly what the Lord is saying to Abraham. See my justice. See my righteousness. And go and do likewise and teach it to the future generations of your offspring. So that's the first implication. The second is that this passage teaches us that as Christians, we are close to God whether we feel it or not. Now let me say that again because this is huge. This is hugely important for spirituality, for Christian spirituality. So often, our spirituality is governed by our feelings. And that's why we feel like we're on a roller coaster. Because sometimes we wake up in the morning, if you're a morning person maybe, particularly, uh, you wake up in the morning and you just feel, woo, you just feel so alive. And you go and read your Bible and you get your cup of coffee and you're just enjoying the Lord and you're, you're looking at the sun rising up out your window and just feel so good. And then by the time you get to about three o'clock in the afternoon, you don't feel God anymore. Where is God? That's really, it's not that ridiculous. But I think oftentimes that's what we do in life. So often our, our relationship to God is governed by fickle feelings. Our mood. How awake we are. How things are going in our lives. And so we're just like a roller coaster. That's the way many live the Christian life. 
What this passage shows us, listen, Christian, is that you are always in this relationship to God. You are always in this proximity to God, even if you don't feel it at all. This is the truth of God. This is the rock-solid objective reality of your Christian identity. If you don't feel anything, you call out to God, and this is his promise. This is who he is to you. He is your friend with whom you talk face to face. He's your father, and you have absolute intimacy with him, whether You feel it or not. That's what it looks like to live by faith and not by feeling or not by sight. To live by faith means to trust this revelation of God about himself and press on through those dry feelings, those dark feelings, those lonely feelings. So that's the second implication. A final implication I want to point to is one of the primary responsibilities of people in covenant with God. This is so, so important. One of the primary responsibilities of people in covenant with God is to teach their children to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Do you see that? This is amazing. This elevates parenting to the highest level of Christian living. This is the Lord stating his purposes for his covenant man. And what does he say to teach your children righteousness and justice? Parenting our children is not some secondary thing we do in the Christian life. It's not devotions and then telling some people about Jesus and going to church regularly. And oh yeah, I want to be a good parent too. No, this is at the top. This is at the top because the future generations will praise him and call him blessed. Worship him as God. As we diligently teach the next generation that he is a Lord who can be depended on. A Lord who can be trusted. A Lord who is mighty in his deeds. We find this all throughout scripture. But it's interesting here that it is elevated to this significant place. In the priorities that God has for Abraham as a covenant-keeping man. And I want you to note one more thing on on that point. Notice the word used is command. It says that he may command his children. Now let me say this. I remember when I was a kid growing up, my dad would often say, and I didn't always like going to church for sure, or being involved in these things, or sitting through family devotions. My dad would always say this. He would always say, as long as you're in my house, you're going to church. Get up. Get ready. Brush your teeth. Put your clothes on. We're leaving. And you know what that looks like? That looks like Genesis chapter 18. Command your children to keep the way of the Lord. We don't make suggestions to our children to keep the way of the Lord. We pray that they will grow up to keep the way of the Lord from the heart. We pray that God would circumcise their hearts, give them a new heart to worship him, and that they would do the things they do out of a love for God. But as long as they are in our home, as long as they are under our oversight and in our care, it is not optional whether or not they will go the way of the Lord. That's what Joshua said. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Not for me and for my kids. We'll see what they think. 
We'll see what they decide. We'll see what they choose. We'll let them uh, think it through and find their own expression. No, that's modern rubbish. That's not the truth of God. That's not the teaching of the Bible. We see here, to be in covenant with God means that we command our children to keep the way of the Lord. And we are diligent in praying that they will do so from the heart. So that's the first, the intimacy. Secondly, we come to the intercession. Look at verses 22 to 33. Verses 22 to 33. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he said to him, and again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So the two angels move on and head towards Sodom, where we see them again in 19.1. I'll read that to you. 19.1, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. So they leave. They're, They're moving towards Sodom. And we see them in the evening. They get there. And Lot takes them in. So now, it is just the Lord and his friend. It is just the Lord and his chosen man. Just the Lord and his vehicle of blessing for the world. Standing, talking, communing, face to face. What an incredible picture. And notice the language. Abraham still stood before the Lord. 1 Samuel 6.20 says, Who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. And here's Abraham standing before the Lord. You know, we, we read things like this too quickly. We take these kinds of things for granted. Okay, there's Abraham. He's standing there talking to God. Got it. You move on to the next verse. Who is able to stand before him, this holy God? 
The answer is those with whom God graciously covenants himself. They are made righteous, counted righteous, circumcised in the heart, and stand before God. Face to face, the infinite, eternal creator God who made the stars and the tiniest atom. To talk with him face to face, despite his or her sin, rebellion, blasphemy. Lack of love, wickedness. We stand before the Lord and commune with him. And as the one through whom the whole world will be blessed, we see him interceding on behalf of the people in Sodom. But who is he interceding for? It is important to see that he is not interceding on behalf of the wicked. And I think some commentators, I think, get this, get this wrong. He's not pleading for the sinners in Sodom. That's not. And I read a number of commentators that say that. That's not what's going on in this passage. He's not pleading for the wicked in Sodom. He's not pleading for the city of Sodom. It's not what we have here. But rather the righteous. Those like Lot who are believers in God. This is much like Jesus' prayer in John 17. Remember those words of Jesus? Verse 9. I am praying for them, my disciples. And then what does he say? I am not praying for the world. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Abraham is interceding on behalf of the righteous people who may live in this wicked city. Will God destroy them too? Will he sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Will God not spare the city If 50 righteous people are found there, I mean, 50 souls who would reach up to heaven and praise God, would God send this this flood of his judgment over that whole city and just wash away those 50 with all the other inhabitants of the city? The concern that Abraham has is that this sort of indiscriminate judgment would be out of character for the Lord, whom Abraham knows to be the just judge of all the earth who always does what is right. It's interesting. Abraham's not coming to God trying to persuade him to do something other than what he is and does. He is simply saying, but Lord, this is who you are. I know you as you've revealed yourself to me. That is what Abraham is doing. It is in the very nature of a just judge to do what? To discriminate, to differentiate, to distinguish between the good and the bad. Isn't that what we say when we say, you need better judgment? What does that mean when you tell someone they need better judgment? That was poor judgment. What does that mean? It means you are unable to discriminate between the good and the bad, to differentiate, to distinguish between the right path and the erroneous path that you you blended the two. You didn't see them clearly, the contours of those things clearly. That's what it means to judge. This is what it means to be a judge. It's intrinsic to the idea to render judgment accordingly, according to those clearly defined categories. Psalm 1, verses 5 to 6 says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows, there's that word know again, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So God most certainly does distinguish and differentiate between the righteous and the wicked. And although no man is good, hear this, this is very important. Although no man is good, 
or inherently righteous, God in his grace had chosen from Adam and Eve all the way to the beginning, from the beginning, he had chosen to bestow his righteousness on those who trusted him. How? Looking forward to the substitutionary sacrifice of the righteous man and lamb of God. That's how God counted the Old Testament saints righteous. And they were righteous indeed. Because, as he does with us, he counts us righteous. He reckons righteousness to us. And then he transforms our hearts so that we begin increasingly more and more throughout this life to manifest the righteousness of God from the heart in our actions. So the Lord uses this opportunity to reiterate what Abraham already knows. Yes, the Lord is just. And yes, he does differentiate. And this will be seen later in his rescue of Lot. Those angels will go in and they will rescue Lot and his family. But his family, uh, we see what happens with them. We'll get there. But they rescue Lot. And it says at the end of chapter 19, for the sake of Abraham, they do this. There weren't 10. There didn't end up being 10. Just Lot. And what to make of his daughters is difficult. But what what does the Lord do? He saves him anyway. Abraham humbly and reverently yet boldly moves from 50 all the way to 10. I mean, this questioning is almost scandalous. You read it and you think, what in the world are you doing, Abraham? You're talking to God. I mean, first of all, you're standing in the presence of God. Isn't that enough? But you're whittling him down. So he's haggling with God, getting him down from 50 all the way to 10. Who in the world does this man think he is? But we do see his humility. Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. But this once, suppose ten are found there. And the Lord answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. But it is not only his justice, as we finish up this morning, it's not only God's justice, his discriminating between the wicked and the righteous, that God wants Abraham to know. This is very important. It's not just his justice. It is also his mercy. We see this from the very beginning to the end. In verse 26, and the Lord said, listen to these words. The Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. That is incredible. I mean, we pass over that too quickly. God will spare an entire city of wicked rebel sinners for the sake of 50 righteous people. Seen from that angle. It's incredible, merciful. And then in verse 32, he will do this for the sake of 10. Pass over the sin, withhold his judgment of the whole city for the sake of these 10 people, these few people. So not only does God mercifully and graciously Count some people righteous. Why are there any righteous people to begin with? Because God mercifully counts them righteous. Not only does God mercifully and graciously follow the logic here, not only does he count those people righteous, he then passes over judging the wicked on account of such a small number of those righteous who wouldn't be righteous unless he mercifully counted them so. You see that? This is the mercy and grace of our God. This is who we worship this morning. This is who we've come together. To celebrate.
This is a God of justice and mercy. This is the way of the Lord. This is the way Abraham and his offspring are to live. Micah understood this. As the Lord spoke through him, Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness or mercy and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, get this. Abraham, God is saying to Abraham, watch me. Watch me and you go and do likewise. See my righteousness. See my justice. And see that in my righteousness and in my justice, we have mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Now go and teach this to Isaac, that he might teach it to his son, and that he might teach it to his sons for many years afterwards. So as we close this morning, I just want to draw out Three implications for us of all of this. Verse 32, it says, Abraham drew near. Do you hear that language? Abraham stood before the Lord. He drew near. For those of us in Christ, God is approachable every minute of every day. Every moment of your life, it is as though you are standing on that hillside with the Lord. And at any moment, listen, Christian, listen, listen, at any moment, you turn and you look to him and you can draw near to him. Any moment, even today, this morning, no matter how dry you feel, no matter how dark you feel, no matter how alone you feel, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. He says, In James, we always stand before him and can always draw near to him. Another implication is our prayers matter to the Lord. And God has ordained, listen to this, God has ordained to accomplish his gracious purposes in the lives of other people through our intercessory prayers. If, if, if it doesn't teach us anything, Abraham teaches us that, that when a, a person of God, a person in covenant with God, righteous in his sight, chosen by him, covered by the blood of the lamb, draws near to God and says, Abba, please be with so-and-so. Please work in their heart. Please save them. God hears these prayers. And it is by means of these prayers that God has ordained to do his sovereign work of salvation. You say, how? Why should we pray? Why should we pray if if God is sovereign over salvation? Because God ordains means to his sovereign ends. And one of those means is that we would intercede for others on their behalf. Finally, we can be assured this morning as Christians, and if you're not a Christian this morning, you can be assured of this also, that in the end, The righteous will not fare as the wicked. That tells us that no matter what we must face in this life, no matter what sufferings we must face through the fallenness of this world, we know Christians fall in hurricanes and earthquakes. We know Christians are are murdered. We know Christians get in car accidents. We know that bad things, Christians get cancer. Christians die of all kinds of things. But what a text like this assures us of is that in the end, we can be confident that the righteous will not fare as the wicked. The righteous will stand upright in the presence of God. They will stand 
in the judgment, in the congregation of God's righteous ones. And the wicked will be swept away. It's an incredible thing when you read Psalm 1, one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. The difference between a righteous person and a wicked person is described as the difference between a tree planted by streams of water, planted there by streams of living water, fresh water, feeding its roots. It yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that it does, it prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. We're not talking about a strong tree and a weak tree. We're not talking about a tree that has big, deep roots and a tree with little shallow roots. We're talking about the difference between a big, strong oak next to a river and chaff, which is like a handful of the grass that you have after you cut your grass on a hot summer's day and you throw it up and the wind just blows it away. That's the difference between a person who knows the Lord God and a person who does not. There is a radical difference now and there will be a radical difference on that day. Jesus gives two pictures. One of a man who builds his life on a rock and one who builds his life on sinking sand, on nothing. The storm comes And the one who builds his life on Christ's words, on the rock, stands. And the one who doesn't, falls. And Jesus said, and great is the fall of it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you that through it you speak. That you speak to us clearly. You speak to us with full disclosure. You are transparent with us, Father. And you have done this through your Son because of his substitutionary death on the cross for us, because he was perfectly righteous. He he did, as the God-man, stand before you in his own righteousness. We stand in his righteousness this morning. Father, we pray that for those of us who are Christians, you would continually assure us of that, that we are clothed with him, that you would help us to not grow weary or faint of heart, that we would trust you and be courageous and strong in our warfare against Satan. We pray for those, Lord, who do not know you, that you would give them eyes to see that their lives are like chaff, like a house built on sand, that one day... They will come to a full understanding that their life was wasted, that it was futile, that it was meaningless, and that now, forever, they will be separated from you in darkness. Father, we pray that the seriousness of heaven and hell, the seriousness of salvation and condemnation would would weigh on us this morning, that we would see you as a God of righteousness and justice, but that we would also see you as a God who, through Christ, is merciful to us who believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.